Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. This is my first broadcast of 2013, and I'm very glad to be back with you. There's a lot going on in our health world, a lot going on in the world. First, some good news. Nice to have some good news to share with you. The average blood cholesterol level in the United States in adults fell to 196 milligrams per deciliter in 2010, according to a recent report in the Journal of the American Medical Association. That's a drop of 10 points since 1988 and 26 points since 1960. This is really good news. Why is it happening? Well, it's happening because of two things. One, the proliferation of statin drugs. Yeah, those are like Lipitor, for example. These are drugs that reduce cholesterol, reduce the, the buildup of the fats in your system. And it's also due to a reduction in trans fat in food. We're eating healthier and the city of Fort Bragg, California, might be the first in the country, I'm not certain, but they have now issued nutritional guidelines. I hope the town of the city of Fort Bragg is really proud of this. The city council has issued guidelines for the food that is going to be recommended to city workers. They're issuing guidelines for the nutrition plan for what's allowable in the vending machines in such places as the CV Star Center. They're making recommendations such as asking or telling employees or suggesting, I think is the word, to employees that when they take their break, they go on a walk. I, this may sound like old hat, but for a city to be doing something like this is on the border of revolutionary and a, and a, a major tip of the health hat to the Fort Bragg City Council and let's all get behind them and follow their guidelines. It certainly has worked in my life. I'm 73 years old. I've tried to practice what I preach. I exercise five or six times uh, a week and eat the kind of food that we talk about here on the program. And it's so far, it's working for me. I hope it works for you as well. Isn't that what grandma told us to do? Eat healthy food, get a good night's sleep, and get exercise. It turns out that old grandma was correct. Well, when it comes to nutritious food, what's your supermarket IQ? I'm gonna ask you some questions, and then I'll give you the answers. I took this from a journal. The best way to shop in a supermarket is around the perimeter. What do you think? True or false? The answer, true. That's where many whole unprocessed foods, notably fruits and vegetables, are almost always found. While in the interior aisles, you'll find highly processed foods, cookies, chips, and sodas. You get it? The people who are manufacturing, they pick the inner area, 
evidently that's where we go first, and that's where the processed stuff and the ch chips and sodas and cookies are. Go around the perimeter for your fruits and vegetables. How about this? If a product has bulk sale pricing, like two for four dollars or four for eleven dollars, you've got to buy that whole bulk in order to get the sale price. What do you think? True or false? The answer? False. Right. You can often get that you, the, the same buy by buying one, but the store assumes that you will buy that larger number in order to get the sale price. You don't have to. How about this one? Brown breads are always more healthful than lighter color breads. True or false? Answer, false. Don't go by the color. Darker is not necessarily more nutritious or higher in fiber. For example, pumpernickel. How do they do it? White flour, and then they throw in molasses or caramel coloring to make them look brown. Why? Because somehow we've got it in our minds in the United States that brown bread is healthier. But it turns out that it's not. How about that? Hmm. How about this one? Dry roasted nuts have about as many calories as oil roasted. Hmm. What do you think? True or false? The answer, true. The calorie difference is quite small. That one fooled me. I thought dry nost, uh, roasted would have had fewer. Turns out that nearly all fat and calories come from the nuts themselves, not from any oil that may be added in the processing. Hey, here's one for you fish eaters. Atlantic salmon is wild salmon. True or false? Answer, false. Wild, wild, wild Atlantic salmon have been so overfished and are no longer caught commercially. Anything labeled Atlantic salmon is farmed. Don't pay extra for it. Next, brown eggs are more nutritious than white eggs. True or false? What do you think, Michael? Brown eggs more nutritious than white eggs? True or false? Michael says false. He's right. The color of an eggshell depends on the hen's genetics. Has nothing to do with nutrition. I remember the days when I used to think brown eggs were more nutritious than white eggs. Glad I learned that one. Some chickens actually lay blue or green eggs. Aracanas, I think they're called. They used to have a couple of them. And last, evaporated cane juice, coconut palm sugar, and barley malt are healthful ingredients. True or false? Cane juice, coconut palm sugar, and barley malt. Healthful. True or false? Answer, false. They are all basically just sugar, and overall, no better for you than white sugar. If you like this sort of thing, send me an email, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com. You like sort of a question and answer kind of event on the program. By the way, our guest today is going to be Dr. Robin Zazio, and we're going to be talking about hoarding behavior. She has a book, The Hoarder in You, How to Live a Happier, Healthier, Uncluttered Life. And at the end of the program today, we're going to have a new section, editorial comments, case histories from my private practice over the last 50 years. I'm going to be telling stories from my case files that hopefully will be of help to you and your family. Here's a little item that I thought I'd bring to your attention because there's so much on television lately 
about gun control. What would you think if we did an analysis comparing the states in the United States who have the death penalty to those who do not have a death penalty? Which group of states do you think would have more murders? Do you think there would be more, the murder rate would be higher in the states that have the death penalty? Or do you think the murder rate would be higher in those states that do not have the death penalty? Well, the answer is, for the last 20 consecutive years, the states which have the death penalty have had more murders than states that do not have the death penalty. What do you all make of that? Every single year for 20 consecutive years, the states that have the death penalty have more murders than those who don't. Sounds counterintuitive to me. What do you all make of it? You can call in later and talk about it. You want to write down the phone number? 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. And you can also call in during our interview with Dr. Zazio on hoarding. In fact, why don't we go right to the interview now? Dr. Robin Zazio is a licensed clinical psychologist and a licensed clinical social worker. She's been specializing in treating anxiety and related disorders for the past 16 years, and she has a treatment center in Sacramento called the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center and Compulsive Hoarding Center, all located in Sacramento, California. Some of you may have already seen her because she's on a program on Animal Planet where she talks about animal phobias, but that's not the topic for today's interview, but you can see her on Animal Planet. You can also go to YouTube and you can see her because she's the consultant to the famous television program on hoarding. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Robin Zazio. Thank you for having me. It's a true pleasure, especially being the uh, first talk for the year. The first talk for the year, indeed. <laughs> well, let's get right into it. Um, tell us, what is hoarding? What is meant when we hear this word hoarding? What is hoarding, and how do you differentiate hoarding from collecting? What makes it called well, hoarding? Yeah, this is a great question, and of course we talk about this in the book, that when we're talking about someone who's collecting, they're, they're, there's a strategy to the things that they acquire. There's uh, what I call a home to put them in. There's a system in which they're acquiring these items that um, create a pattern or a style, something that you can admire and look at, uh, show to others. When we're dealing with hoarders, we're really dealing with um, more of an extreme continuum where there are so many items that are being acquired that they begin to overtake the home. Um, places are being scattered randomly. You can't use the areas for the purpose in which they were intended. You start to have emotional discomfort because you have so much stuff that's cluttering your home. Other people affected. And oftentimes a person begins uh, to become more isolated because they're recognizing that there is too much stuff in their home. And if people came over, they might start to wonder what's going on, and so um, they avoid social contacts, and it just kind of spirals from there. Are, are you saying that if a person has a lot of, quote, stuff, unquote, and it's organized, that puts them, they're different than the people who have a lot of, quote, stuff that's disorganized? 
Well, so, you know, that's a good question, because um, for those of, uh, those of my uh, fans that follow me, uh, many of them know that I have a pretty extensive shoe collection. There's probably over 200 pairs of shoes. However, when you walk into my closet, they're all very nicely displayed. I can access them. I know where um, all the shoes are, you know, for the most part. I'm not digging under my, my bed, or I'm not missing um, pairs, things like that, that I can access them. And they're not interfering with my life. I'm not experiencing financial problems because of them. And I'm at a place where every single one of them has a home. Um, when it comes to hoarding, it's just collecting them because perhaps it was a good deal or you, you're afraid you'll never see these shoes ever again. Or you have a pair, but it's good to have a backup. That you're buying things without necessarily a good concrete reason. And, you know, it, there's a lot of impulse that's involved. Well, you know, you mentioned the shoes, and there's that famous story about Esmeralda Marcos of the Philippines who had 2,000 pair of shoes. Of course, she had servants who kept them organized. Now, would she be considered a hoarder with 2,000 pair or because she had them organized in, by color and, and style and so on, just a person who has a lot of money who likes shoes? Well, you know, I have never been to her home, and I never saw pictures, of course. I've heard about the story as well. But again, what we're really looking at is um, when a person brings something into their home environment, is there a place to put it? Can you access it? Um, are you experiencing financial problems because of the amount of in are you know people complaining because of the amount of stuff that you have is it starting to um, encroach into other people's space it's really about how things are starting to interfere with your stuff with your emotional uh, well-being that we're looking at well even though we know that various kinds of psychological problems are equal opportunity employers across all socioeconomic brackets this is starting to sound a little bit like an economic thing in the sense that if a person has a 30-room house, then they obviously have a lot more room to collect stuff than a person who's living in a trailer that you so often see on the hoarding shows or in a shack or in a little tiny home. How, how do we differentiate between collecting stuff and you happen to have a lot of room and collecting stuff because you have less room and it looks like you're more cluttered. Are there other indices that a person can look at to say, hey, you know, I think I, even though I've got tons, you know, a 15-room house here, I think I'm, I'm, I, I need help because I'm in this hoarding uh, behavior. Absolutely, and I think this is a really good point because when I'm working with people uh, in their home, they'll say, you know, if I just had more space, I could organize it. If I just had more space, then I could put these things away. And it really has nothing to do with space because hoarding um, is, is a clinical condition, um, like depression or an anxiety disorder, that, you know, some of us can wake up and feel sad and lonely, um, unmotivated. Um, we can have anxiety in our lives, but it's the point at which it begins to interfere with our lives that it's becoming a problem. So space is not the issue, because if someone has um, a clinical hoarding syndrome, then more space only allows for more stuff. Okay, let's talk about a, a word there that sort of bounced out as you were speaking. Interfere 
with mm-hmm. life. Okay, that sounds very important. So, of course, there can be interference if you have a hundred-room home. There could be interference if you have one-room home. I, yeah. That's very clear. You drive around in neighborhoods where people live their garages open, and so often we see the garage seems like completely stuffed. You know what I'm talking about, right? You yeah. see all kinds of stuff. And then occasionally you see a, a garage where everything is neatly laid out. When, you, when, when we pass by those garages, or our own garage, and there's, it's loaded, is that in and of itself a sign that it's interfering in some way with one's life? Or how do we know when the stuff, if a person's listening to this program, they're, they're scratching their head and they're saying, gee, I mean, I've got an awful lot of stuff in my closet or in my garage or something. How, how can I tell if it's interfering with my life? What, is some, what, what should I look for here? Yeah, and, you know, I think for any one of us, you know, if we drive past the garage and we see that it's full, we don't want to make judgments and say, oh, my gosh, there's a hoarder. I wonder what their house looks like, because for all we know, they just moved in, and they're carefully and strategically taking things out and putting them in their home one by one. On the other hand, if that's not the case and your garage is filled, I think the most important thing to look at is why are you holding on to this stuff? If that garage is filled, it is quite likely that you are not accessing, you know, probably 70% of that stuff because there's so much stuff on the bottom that you can't even get to that. And I actually had a personal experience when I had to move my office a year ago. It was about 15 suites, and we were in a home-like environment. So there were lots of cabinets, lots of nooks and crannies. And when I started to move into this uh, more business-type setting, there were no closets. And so I came to find out how much stuff... I had accumulated over the years, and I remember one particular moment where my heart started pounding, and I started sweating and shaking because I realized I had hundreds and hundreds of decisions to make about stuff. Now, here's the key word. That is perfectly good, usable stuff. You know, I had extra coffee makers or toasters for the kitchen area. I had extra chairs and tables, um, office supplies, none of which I had any home to put them in my new office. And so for me, I had to go back to the principles that I wrote about, that I talked to my clients about, that, yes, I understand these things are perfectly good usable stuff. However, in this moment, they're not usable stuff for you because you don't have any place to put them. And I could clearly see that there was only two options that was that, that were going to happen. One was either to get a storage unit, which once again, how am I going to use stuff if it's in a storage? Or two, things were going to start to be stacked up on the side of my office, which wasn't appropriate either. So I began purging and just getting rid of this stuff, remembering that I was starting to have my own cognitive distortions, again, key words, about why I was keeping stuff. Just because it's good and usable doesn't mean I need to keep it. So when we go back to your question about someone who's got that garage, start thinking about why you're holding on to stuff. If you've got you know, two or three air compressors, but two of them are buried below all the other stuff, it's not likely something that's usable for you. It might be usable for somebody else. Consider having a garage sale or considering having your neighbors come over and start going through your stuff and seeing what you can get rid of. You can use um, a, start to use one of those air compressors to blow out your garage. Well, yeah, <laughs> now, go. question, yeah, Robin. So Robin, let me ask you a question here. Were you, did you self-diagnose yourself as, as hoarding when you saw the amount of, of backup that you had for these various items? 
and you noticed no, that your heart but, was you know, beating and you were shaking? The book, as I know that you read, you know, I talk about that makeup drawer where I was holding on to makeup from college because I thought, you know, I don't wear green and black eyeliner today, but what if I needed a costume and I needed those, those items? Why go out and spend 10 bucks on these items when I have them here? Well, you know, I wouldn't use them even if it came down to it, but it's that what if and the regret and spending more money when you think that you don't need to spend it because you already have it. And the reality is, is it took me far past the publishing of my book to actually get rid of that makeup drawer. But when I did, when I purged that makeup drawer, when I purged my office, I felt so relieved. I felt so much freer of not having so much stuff. And it was emotionally relieving, which is a key theme, too, that um, you know, physical clutter can create a lot of emotional clutter as well. It's, when I'm listening to you pur- it's talking about purging of this various clutter stuff, and I'm wondering if scientifically there's been found a relationship between uh, eating disorders and hoarding behavior, such as bulimia and anorexia, where one purges in order to get rid of internal stuff. You know, absolutely. There, you know, it's it's this idea of control, uh-huh. and um, you know, I talk with people all the time about the psychological factors that drive hoarding behaviors. You know, ninety nine percent of the time, there's something going off, and more frequently, we see loss and trauma, and as a result of. Um, these psychological factors they start acquiring as a way to distract against their pain and their loss or as a way to numb or suppress. And for them, it oftentimes feels like there is a control factor. Um, you know, I'm, I'm managing my mo- emotions. I'm holding them in. I'm not breaking down. But you're replacing it with another behavior that's maladaptive, that's causing other problems for you, um, personally, possibly professionally, socially, and so forth. So the idea is, and this is, I can't stress one of the most important points um, that I really want to make, and that is, it's not about a cleanup process. It's not just about purging, as it is being very thoughtful about why you're holding on to stuff, what you need to let go of, and what are the factors that were driving your need to hold on to that stuff so that as you become emotional that you can deal with those issues. So, you do know, you think, do, uh, uh, Robin, of, let me yeah. interrupt you. Do you think that people who are stuffed, as we see on television in the hoarding program, or those of us who have witnessed it clinically, do you think when people are that far into it that, that their homes are stuffed, are they, are they able to ask themselves such rational questions that you're bringing up about themselves and about what they're doing? Or are they out of control and really uh, they need people outside of themselves to, to, to help them? I mean, what's the situation? I, I don't quite get how you can ask that rational question when you're in, involved in such irrational behavior. Well... With the inception of uh, the A&E series Hoarders, it has blown this condition wide open. You know, it used to be like, oh, I think I think I have a hoarder next door, and now people are talking about my aunt, my grandmother, my brother, um, my friend, my neighbor, um, because they brought so much awareness to this condition that, you know, we don't even know how many people it affects because so many people are living in silence. You know, their house doesn't fill up overnight. It's a progression, just like any disease. You know, you don't become an addict overnight. It's a progression. It becomes very much a lifestyle. And so when you're looking at the show and you think, how can somebody live like that? 
it didn't happen overnight, and they didn't make a choice to become a compulsive hoarder. You didn't just uh, you didn't just fill up your garage in one day. It's just like exactly, you, you, uh, no, no exactly. alcoholic ever started by drinking a whole fifth. They started with a smaller amount. I'm getting a signal here, Robin, that uh, somebody wants to ask you a question, so okay. I'm going to take the call. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you for this, uh, this particular episode. I have two questions for you. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yes. uh, let's hear the two questions, please. Oh, okay. Um, one, um, I'm a chronically disorganized person, and it's not that I collect things, but that I put them away or put them down and forget about them until I have boxes of paperwork or whatever, and then I don't know what to do with it. Okay. Is that considered hoarding if I'm really just chronically um, disorganized? <laughs> Let me then, ask you this. If you had somebody come into your house that was an expert in organizing or dealing with clutter, would you anticipate that if they could help you put it all away that there would be homes for everything? I think so, except like what you're talking about. I have extra coffee makers and extra microwaves and extra, you know, stuff. That's perfectly good. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the key is, again, um, you know, to be thoughtful about why you're keeping the stuff. And, again, the concept of just because it works and it's usable doesn't mean it's necessarily usable for you. What I would recommend is you consider breaking your house down into rooms or even sections. And rather than look at your whole house and go, oh, my gosh, I can't handle this, and, you know, becoming the ostrich and, you know, sticking your head in the ground because you don't want to see it type thing, consider just starting in one corner and um, schedule time in to organize, to per to purge, even consider whether or not you can set up a buddy system if you have a friend that's dealing with some organizational or clutter issues as well, that perhaps Saturday between you know 10 and noon, she can come to your house, and then on Sunday between 10 and noon, you can go to, to her house. And having kind of that outside voice to have someone say, okay, so look, we've got three microwaves here. Are, you know, when was the last time you used this microwave? You know, to have kind of that voice to have you talk, uh, you know, to, to kind of talk through it. And remember, you don't need to declutter your house in one day. Give yourself a month or two months over time, and as you start to gain moment, momentum, that momentum will help to inspire you to keep going. So what I'm okay. hearing from you, Robin, as in so many things in life, instead of taking on the entire thing, Instead of running a marathon 26 miles, yeah. you do it in 100 yards or you do it in 300 yards. And what you're suggesting to the caller is don't take on the house. Take on a little piece of the house at a time. And then the other thing is to get a friend to do it with you, which so, would often makes so many of our tasks in life much easier. I'd like to ask you, caller, one question. What, mm-hmm. what do you tell yourself is the reason you have more than one microwave, for example? Well, because, um, like, the one that I use in the house works, and it's great, and the one that um, I have, like, the two that I have stacked in the garage, one was given to us, and the other one was our original, and the, the display stopped working on it, but it still worked, you know, so... Okay. We're all laughing at that one. The microwaves that are stacked in the garage. (laughs) You know, it's not likely that you're using them. And, you know, I think that sometimes it is really 
um, helpful to be thinking about, um, you know, what's happening out in the world. So many people who are homeless or have lost their homes and perhaps are getting into new homes that could use even that microwave that doesn't have the, the, the digital light up or whatever it is, just the fact that it works and can heat up food for their family, then it becomes useful. Yeah. Which brings me to, my, to the second half of my question is, is, say we do this, and those of us that are, that are listening and we're saying, yes, I've got a couple of extra coffee makers, I've got a couple of extra this, but I don't really know how to get it out there, and I really don't want a bunch of strangers coming to my house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's Salvation Army, there's Goodwill, you can go huh. online and look at your local resources. Um, you know, there are so many places that you can donate. There you go. And I just, you know, that's what made me feel really good about my situation is I knew all that stuff was going to go to good use. And that being said, make sure that you... Um, Purge that stuff to the donation center on a regular basis. Don't let it start piling up because you'll start to second guess. So make a yes. plan to do a run at least once a week because once it's gone, it's not likely that you're going to think about it. And one so thing, one thing I want to add, a, a, a caller, one thing I want to add to what uh, uh, Robin is saying, and that is yes. if you bring it to one of those societies, such as the Humane Society or Goodwill and so on, you also get a receipt and you get a tax deduction, which is a good thing. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, let's sure. go on uh, back to the interview, and thank you so much for the call. Uh, Robin, I, uh, somebody, I got a, a question here to ask you. It was written to me. Um, what, are, what are some of the reasons that people hoard? Where does this come from? Well, you know, again, I, it, it's not a black and white uh, question because for any one person, it, it varies. You know, the hoarder in you is not necessarily about compulsive hoarding as it is speaking to all of us, like the caller, myself, who are on that continuum who get attached to our stuff. There, for me, was nothing psychological about acquiring um, those extra coffee pots. Um, you know, I think old employees, um, you know, brought them in and might have left them, or there's coffee cups that might have left, and they just kept building and building and building. So I wasn't going out and yard sailing, garage sailing, purchasing them. They were just acquired over having a practice for, you know, 15 years and being in one place. Um, and then what happened was when it was time for me to let go, I recognized how much I got caught up in those cognitive distortions about keeping things. Um, so for me, there wasn't anything psychological driving the acquisition. For other people, as I mentioned earlier, we're oftentimes seeing um, grief and loss issues, whether it not be loss of a career, um, loss of a family member, loss of a friend that they just emotionally could not process or get over. And so, so they're dealing with their they're dealing yeah, with their emotional state. Against dealing with those yeah. really painful feelings, they'll start to shop and acquire as behaviors to avoid. Very similar to people, those of us who use food that way. And here's Absolutely. An, yeah, here's another call we're going to take. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Miller, and uh, your guest. A really good show, Robin. Um, you piqued my interest when you talked about animals. Oh, and to the previous caller, we have the food bank where they give it free to people who are needy, uh, along with food. And we have the ark, which is for animals, um, and uh, that helps the homeless animals and all. And we have Paul Bunyan, which I believe helps uh, children in need. But uh, do you have a question? question the, on the animals, at least my question. The uh, I, I was reading in National Geographic 
about a man who was a cat expert. And it turns out that I'm looking towards the cause of maybe some of this hoarding. It turns out that he had toxoplasmosis, which not only causes the um, what the rats predate for, uh, the, the cats predate for in the form of rats being attracted to the cats, it apparently affects all mammals that way because people have the same attraction to cats. And I'm wondering if there may be something like toxoplasmosis, which leads to what some people consider animal hoarding, the cat lady, quote-unquote, on that aspect of it. Um, I have met a few people in that so-called category. Okay, great question for Robin. Robin, let's find out what you have to say about animal hoarding. And thank you, caller, for that. Yeah, I've I've never heard that as being a uh, precedent to animal hoarding. I mean, uh, again, oftentimes the same psychological factors driving hoarding um, with um, you know, other object, objects that are non-living are very consistent. Um, what I will say is um, it's much more difficult to work with people that have animal hoarding because they feel like they're doing a good thing, that as the cats or dogs or other animals come past their property who they believe are homeless and have nowhere else to go, that they feel like they're doing a good thing for them. But um, they become very um, colorblind with respect to um, the health of the animals and not seeing that the more animals that they acquire that they can't take care of, they're actually harming and hurting them rather than helping them. So there's a, a number of other factors that we really have to consider when we're looking at animal hoarding. Robin, when I was uh, doing some uh, research uh, for the program, I started to ask myself, you know, uh, what, what do I know? Am I a hoarder? I, I don't think so. I mean, I look around my house, but I thought, you know, I'd like to ask myself the question, you know, how do I know? And so I came across a test called the Wade Bennett Life Clutter Test. Um, do you recommend this or other tests that people might take online in order to uh, learn more about the possibility of whether they are hoarders or not? I'm sure. I mean, that's certainly something that people can do. Um, but I think we can actually just simplify it because, you know, we've got callers coming in saying, well, I can relate and I'm not a hoarder, but I'm a clutterer. And of course, um, again, the book is on the continuum and I have found myself on that continuum. And so I'm not a hoarder as it is. What lessons can any one of us learn who have compulsive hoarding um, issues? Um, and, you know, again, just looking at your stuff, you may just have a closet that's um, causing you emotional distress. You may just have a drawer that's called, causing you emotional distress. And if that's the case, make a plan to start decluttering. And we talked about some of those strategies earlier. Of course, the book is loaded with them as well. The person that you're listening to is Dr. Robin Zasio. This is Dr. Richard Miller, the program Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We're talking about Robin's latest book, The Hoarder in You, How to Live a Happier, Healthier, Uncluttered Life. Robin, suppose somebody's listening and they have an idea that one of their family members or a close friend is hoarding. How do you approach a person how do you approach somebody close? What, what are the kinds of things you say to them in order to hopefully help them because you think that this stuff, quote, stuff, is interfering with their lives? Yeah, and this is always tough because many people have uh, tried so many different things. And, um, you know, my approach is to talk to people in a way where you're using um, lots of I messages rather than, you know, you or talking in an accusatory way. You know, you're a hoarder. You have a problem. That just puts up people's defenses. Talk to them about your concerns, about how their stuff 
may be affecting their lives. That, um, you know, you can look at perhaps how your relationship has changed as a result of their stuff. And just ask them open-ended questions, how they feel about it. Are they concerned about it? You're there for them. You're not judging them. That, you know, they may have their own attachment to stuff, and perhaps how can they work together to start the decluttering process? It's, you know, certainly not that straightforward, but just starting to open some dialogue with very caring, loving, compassionate words and tones can oftentimes be a start to open the door. Okay, we've got another caller here. We'll take the call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello, Dr. Miller. Good morning. It's Mystery. Hello, Mystery. So, do you have a question for uh, Dr. Zazio? I should only have such pro- such problems as all that clutter. I love it. <laughs> I love stuff. <laughs> well, that's terrific, and thank you for calling and letting us know. I guess that wasn't exactly a question, but it's a, it's a cheering us on, Robin. <laughs> so, what about purposefully creating hoarding in people? Are some of our commercial establishments doing that, in your opinion? For example, we go to Costco. You try to buy one item there, and it looks like you've got to buy a a shrink wrap of 15 of them. You go into Costco, and they've got wagons that are big enough that you could put uh, enough to fill up your whole garage with, you know, just to walk around the store in. You know what I'm talking about. You go over to buy, you want to buy two rolls of toilet paper, and it ends up you walk out with 43 rolls of toilet paper. Are they they creating hoarding? Somebody like me, there's only two of us living in the home. You know, having 43 rolls of toilet paper is really unnecessary because, needless to say, we start to run into a storage problem. And so our visits to Costco are very, very time limited. Perhaps a dinner party where we know we can use the stuff because um, you're right, society really sends the message that more is better. And that also, you know, you talked about in the beginning, um, grocery stores that say, you know, um, you know, if you buy five, you get it at this price without right. really realizing you can buy one and yes. get it at the same price. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I think what's important is that most people... I shouldn't say most, many people actually lose money by buying more because if it's food and it has an expiration date, such as desserts or meats or fruits and things like that, you end up buying more, but you can't use everything that you're buying. Yes. So we have to all be aware of, once again, this idea of, gosh, you know, this is a really good deal, but do we have room for, you know, the extra 38 rolls of toilet paper, because right now we've got a cabinet that can assist five. And so what happens is, is that's when the clutter starts to build, because you're getting it because you feel like it's a good deal, but it's now starting to overtake your home, which then creates emotional clutter. Okay, emotional clutter. That's really what this is about, isn't it? There's some connection here between the taking in of the stuff and the hoarding of this stuff, and changing our emotional state. Isn't that the bottom line of what this is all about? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with having stuff, and there's certainly nothing wrong with having a lot of stuff, and I want to be really clear about that. But, um, you know, it's it's about being able to walk into your home, um, you know, and have it be your palace. What, whatever your home looks like, to be able to walk in and be able to sit down on your couch and put your feet up without having to throw stuff on the floor or without having to create another space. To have that balance in your life between once you've, you've left work or left whatever you're doing during the day to come home and have that physical space to be emotionally healthy, to read or to watch TV or to have a nice meal on your kitchen table or even to be able to prepare a meal in your kitchen without saying, you know what, there's just too much stuff around here, let's just go out. Because once you start doing things like that, you're letting your stuff overtake your stuff. You're allowing your stuff to start making decisions for what you can do and not do. Okay, we're about running out of time here, so I want to end up with you giving some tips to our listeners what they might look for early on into their hoarding so they don't become major hoarders and what they might do early on in order to identify. Yeah, um, again, some of the things we've talked about is making sure that when you purchase something and you bring something into your home, that it has a home. You have an identified place where it's going to live. And just because there's an open space on the floor, that doesn't mean it's a home unless, it's a, of course, it's a rug or a coffee table, that sort of thing. Um, making sure that um, your stuff is not interfering with your emotional happiness and that of others who are living with you and ensuring that you're not starting to isolate yourself from people because you're fearful of what they'll think if they walk into your home. And if any of these factors um, are starting to kind of play into your life, you know, as we talked about earlier, consider talking with a friend and having a buddy system where you can work in your house and then go to their house. Make it something fun. You know, put some nice coffee on or go to lunch afterwards. Um, it doesn't have to be something tedious. And don't think about cleaning your home in one day or two days or even five days. Break it down into manageable sections so that you can start to see that progress and be motivated by those spaces that you're starting to clear. Have you found that people are able to do some of the things that you're suggesting by themselves, or are they most often likely to be able to do them if they're able to bring friends or family members in to help, or both? How, how do you approach? What's the best thing way for a person to approach this? You know, I think it's very individualized. Um, you know, I had to bring a friend in because I was getting so overwhelmed um, that I had to bring somebody in. And when I would pick something up and I would be looking at it, she would say, you know what, if you have to look at it and figure out what you're going to do with it, you probably don't need it. And I would go, you're right. And I would just set it down. Let's, would so you repeat that? Repeat that, like, Robin. Repeat that. If you have to look at it, say that again. That sounded yeah, real important. if you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out where it's going to go, it's likely you don't need it because most of the things that we can pick up is go, oh, I can put this here. So we talk about if you haven't made a decision within three seconds, it probably should either be thrown away, donated, recycled, um, or, you know, go in some other form. And then we have the Ohio rule, which was uh, created by Randy Frost, which is only handle it once. Pick it up. And it's either going to go in its home or it's going to go away in some form. But if you pick it up and set it down and you put it in a maybe pile, it is not likely going to go. And then you're going to start doing what we call churning, and that is picking stuff up, moving it around, and then nothing goes. Okay. 
We're at the end of the interview. Is there any last tidbit you want to pass on to our listeners, or are we done? I think we've covered it pretty good. Um, you know, just quickly in terms of, you know, what's the best rule in terms of moving forward? You know, just be really honest with yourself about your stuff, your relationship to your stuff. Um, and if, you know, you want to do it on your own, pick up one of the self-help books that give lots of um, ideas and strategies and pick the ones that work best for you. Not every strategy is going to work best for your personality type. Dr. Robin Zazio of Sacramento, California, founder and owner of the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center and Compulsive Hoarding Center. I thank you so much for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. Thank you for having me. Robin's book, The Hoarder in You, How to Live a Happier, Healthier, Uncluttered Life. Here are a couple of things that you might want to consider with regard to hoarding. See if the stuff in your house is more than clutter. Take a look at it. Just like Robin says, if you look at it and you got to think about it, maybe it's time to go. Check and see if you're unable to throw away possessions or give them away. If you feel unable, that's a sign that you may be hoarding. Your possessions have taken over your living space. Maybe you only have a path through your living area or through your garage to walk through. Maybe your couches, tables, or beds are just covered with stuff. These are signs that you're hoarding. You can't use your appliances or plumbing fixtures anymore. Or maybe the refrigerator has mold in it. Maybe your sink is full of dishes you can't manage. Maybe the cat has made the bathroom sink its new litter box. Daily functions like cooking and bathing are almost impossible, so you're relying on takeout and microwave meals. These are all signs of hoarding. You feel embarrassed by your possessions. You feel uncomfortable when other people see all that you have. You dread having friends or family enter your house. Unlike collectors who are proud, you're ashamed of what you have. Those are signs of hoarding. You're suspicious of other people touching your possessions. After visits from family or friends, you check the trash for discarded possessions of yours. You think they may be throwing your stuff away. Wow, even if your possessions are unmanageable, you feel anxious when others offer to help you clean it up. If you feel anxious, it could be that you're hoarding. And sometimes you even check the trash when you've taken it out just in case you threw something out you consider to be a possession. That's another sign of hoarding. You can't pass up a bargain. It hurts you to pass up a good bargain. So your house is full of items that you've purchased. Signs of hoarding. And even if you don't really have enough money to shop, you can't stop yourself from buying something that's a bargain. You may be spending hours a day in thrift stores so that you can buy things very inexpensively and bring them home even though you don't need them. Could be a sign of hoarding. You're sure there's a buried treasure under the piles of stuff in your house. People keep telling you to just take a garbage bag and get rid of all that stuff, and you don't understand. You feel like you can't because somewhere in there is a nugget of something really valuable. Sign of hoarding. You move stuff from pile to pile, but you don't throw it away. In order to find your possessions, you have to start sorting through piles of stuff. And instead of throwing away things that have no monetary value or giving them away like old newspapers, you find yourself moving them from pile to pile. 
According to the Mayo Clinic, that alone is a sign of hoarding. And last, your house smells bad and is dirty, but you can't clean it up because you've gotten used to things like even animal feces on the floor and you can't manage to clean up the mess. Your house smells. Squalor is not necessarily a symptom of hoarding, but it can be a red flag. I'm appreciative to Dr. Robin Zazio to bring this, for bringing this to our attention. That's it for our interview today. And now for some editorial comments. I said I was going to start this new part of the program, which is to bring you information from case histories from my private practice over these past 50 years. In the, um, in the Scientific American, December 2012, there is an article by a Dr. Charles Seife, who is a professor of journalism at New York University. The title of his article, which begins on page 57, is is drug research trustworthy? Subtitle, The pharmaceutical industry funnels, funnels money to prominent scientists who are doing research that affects its products and nobody can stop it. This article is right in line with an interview I did some months ago that some of you heard. If you haven't heard it, you can listen to it on my website. It's called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. He talks in that book about how the SSRIs, which supposedly are meant to balance brain chemistry, are actually causing an epidemic of imbalance in brain chemistry. He talks about his research indicating that people with various, quote, mental disorders who supposedly have imbalances really don't, that there's no evidence scientifically for the fact that they really have imbalances, and so when you give them the SSRIs, these various antidepressants, what you're doing is causing an imbalance. Here's Dr. Charles Seife in Scientific American, again, December 2012, page 57, and he is saying that many researchers maintain close financial ties to the drug companies that stand to gain from the results of their research. Congress passed the Physicians Payment Sunshine Act starting in 2013, which supposedly will compel pharmaceutical firms and medical device manufacturers to reveal most of the money they are putting into the pockets of physicians. However, as this case study and many others show, neither scientific institutions nor the scientists themselves show a willingness to police conflicts of interest in research. Basically, folks, what is happening? is just like we, as we know, that the bailout, the government bailout, was not really a bailout, it was a payoff to big business. We know that a lot of that bailout money was used for bonuses and for feathering the pockets of people in Wall Street. Basically what happened there is they socialized the debt, they capitalized the profit. What does that mean? It means a few people get the profits, a small percentage, perhaps the 1%, get the profits, capitalism, and the whole United States chipped in to pay off the debt. So we socialized the debt. We all paid for what these few people are getting. The same thing is happening, unfortunately, in the pharmaceutical industry and in the medical psychological profession. Namely, money is ruling the show. Money is being used to bias scientific research 
and it is affecting millions, if not tens of millions, of people around the United States. It's an extremely difficult situation. But that is the situation. Recently, I had a patient come to me from Boston, Massachusetts, a man 39 years old. Suicidal, depressed, anxious, not wanting to live, very unhappy, is saying the least. I interviewed this patient, and I found that he was on no less than seven different medications, most of them being given to him by one medical doctor, a prominent physician in Boston. What did I find out when I looked over the list? I found out that the combination of these medications were enough to make any of us suicidal. Some of the medications the person were taking, Cymbalta, Remeron, Neurontin, Xanax, four, I won't go on to mention all the others, four of those alone, in combination. If I were to take them, or you were to take them, there's a strong likelihood that you also would be drugged out, would be depressed, and possibly suicidal. What can we do about this? The industry, the medical industry, and the medical schools are being driven by money. And this is something that must be exposed to the entire American public in order to help our lives, in order to make our lives safer. When you take a person who is suffering from anxiety or depression and give them medications which make them more depressed or raise their suicidality, they are then even more afraid. They're afraid to come off the medication, and yet the taking the medication makes their condition worse. What is the person supposed to do about this? And what are all of us supposed to do? The only answer that I can come up with is similar to what we're doing in other areas financially. We have to be very local. We have to learn to make relationships with our local doctors and find out who they are, what they're like as people, and find out which ones that we can really trust to be very careful with our medications. We've got to do the same thing in terms of learning ourselves. We have to. If you leave it up to others, it may not work for you. Localization that we're talking a lot about is essential. That means finding your local doctor and now I'm going to go on to another aspect of it politically. It means buying locally. It means as much as possible raising our own food or getting together with neighbors to raise food. Why am I going in this direction now after talking about these SSRIs and the medications? Because prevention, staying healthy, is our best alternative to being subject to the pharmaceutical industry and their effect on the medical profession which is going to be too often giving us medications that aren't going to work. But staying healthy can, this can be our solace. It can be the avenue to keep us safe. That means safe food. That often is going to meet, mean raising our own food or buying food that is raised locally. It means exercising. I talked earlier in the program how the city of Fort Bragg is now coming out with guidelines for its own employees 
and for what's going to take place in the city schools and in the city recreational center such as the CV Star Center, what kind of food is going to be offered in the vending machines. This is a tremendous move forward. Staying safe, preventing means getting together with neighbors, having friends that you can rely on, that you can talk to about what you're dealing with rather than putting yourself at the mercy of pharmaceutical industry and becoming a pill-taking person. How many people nowadays, ask around, how many people are taking some form of medication on a daily basis, day in and day out? It's time to reread 1984. Yes, it is. It's time to reread that book. It's time to reread Brave New World. These men were telling us what life was going to be looking like in the future, and we are now in the future. And this is a path, in many cases, that is not serving us. But what can serve us is our community. As I've said, we cannot necessarily do something about what's going on in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., but we can do something about what's going on in our own community, with our own neighbors, in our own backyards, with our own children, in our own schooling system. It's up to us. And each little community is a great community. We all know that. So we have to pull together and we can make it happen. Better health, more prevention. Thank you so much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our staff at KZYX, and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me in again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be Dr. William Courtney. We're going to be talking about uses of non-psychoactive marijuana, health-producing marijuana, not getting high marijuana. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.